Ezekiel chapter 39. This is good news. I just saw this. I had to share this with you in the paper this morning, in the, uh, online actually, my paper. Uh, good news. Life on earth has another good 1.75 billion years to go. <laughs> Wayne Perry of Live Science, NBCNews.com, shares that earth could continue to host life for at least another 1.75 billion years. As long as nuclear holocaust, an errant asteroid, or some other disaster doesn't intervene, a new study calculates. <laughs> but even without such dramatic doomsday scenarios, astronomical forces will eventually render the planet uninhabitable. Somewhere between 1.75 billion and 3.25 billion years from now. So, you know, it's somewhere in there. <laughs> Did you, did you hear that? Somewhere between 1.75 billion and 3.25 billion. Somewhere in there. Well, thank you for narrowing this down. <laughs> Earth will travel out of the solar system's habitable zone and into the hot zone. New research indicates. We are so brilliant. This is what I love. Simple cells first appeared on Earth nearly 4 billion years ago. How does he know? Was he there? I mean, well, all the evidence seems to... No, it doesn't. But that's another sermon for another time. We had insects 400 million years ago, dinosaurs 300 million years ago, and flowering plants 130 million years ago. Lead researcher Andrew Rushby of the University of East Anglia in the United Kingdom said in a statement, Anatomically, modern humans have only been around for the last 200,000 years. This is my favorite line. So you can see it takes a really long time for intelligent life to develop. And I say, yes, it does. Yes, it does. <laughs> Goodness sakes. <laughs> Come, Lord Jesus. Let's hear what the Bible has to say. Ezekiel chapter 39, verse 25, Therefore thus says the Lord God, Now I will restore the fortunes of Jacob, and have mercy on the whole house of Israel, and I will be jealous for my holy name. They will forget their disgrace, and all their treachery which they perpetrated against me, when they live securely in their own land, with no one to make them afraid. When I bring them back from the peoples and gather them from the lands of their enemies, then I shall be sanctified through them in the sight of the many nations. And then they will know that I am the Lord their God, because I made them go into exile among the nations and then gathered them again to their own land. And I will leave none of them there any longer. I will not hide my face from them any longer, for I will have poured out my spirit on the house of Israel, declares the Lord God. Lord, praise you. Praise you for your perfect plan. Praise you for your wisdom that is, Lord, your foolishness that is greater than the wisdom of man. We praise you that your thoughts are not our thoughts. You see, Lord, our, our thoughts, as you, as you know, makes us come up with billions of stupid things. Your thoughts are so far beyond us. Your ways are not our ways. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so high are your thoughts and your ways above us, O Lord God. And we praise you this morning because in spite of our foolishness, you continue to work your perfect will. We praise you, Father, because in spite of our faithlessness, you continue to be faithful 
We praise You because in spite of our breaking of covenants and promises, You never break a single one. And we praise You, Lord, because You have shown Your love through Your people Israel and especially through Jesus Christ to everybody on the planet. May we have eyes to see. Holy Spirit, enlighten us this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Ezekiel 39, verses 25 through 29, this is very important to understand, is not an epilogue. It's a prologue. Now, we can sometimes get confused because we have chapter and verse here, but chapter and verse was added at a later date. Chapter and verse was not original. And what we read in these few verses from verse 25 through 29 is a prologue. It is not concluding what has come before. It's introducing what's coming next. I would add it into the beginning of chapter 40 because it is an introductory statement. Now let's go back a little bit and understand where we've been. We've been hiking across some truly large mountains of prophecy with Ezekiel. We've seen breathtaking vistas and bone-rattling valleys. And we've seen God's future plans are looking far less future than perhaps we may have thought. As we walk through these things, we, we studied Ezekiel 1 through 32, primarily history, although there's some covenant promises shared throughout, scattered within there. But when we got to Ezekiel 33, suddenly it all came to a head with the fall of Jerusalem in 586 BC. Immediately following that disaster, God reset Ezekiel's watch. And he spent his last seven years of ministry as a watchman of future events. Actually, it would be more than that. He would have spent his last 15 years of ministry in that. I'll go back and double-check my my years, but I think that's right. But that's our calling, watchmen for Jesus, proclaimers of the Gospel. And there's an absolute shift in in the teaching, in the prophecies of Ezekiel that begins not before the fall, but after the fall of Jerusalem. Not in times where they could hold on to a shred of hope without hope, but after the hope was gone. Ezekiel then begins to prophesy future events, the coming kingdom. Ezekiel 34, that chapter was a warning. We studied through that. A warning against Israel's bad shepherds and a declaration of Israel's only good shepherd, that being the Lord. Ezekiel 35 and 36 presented us with the first great prophetic overview with the mountains of Israel. Now, I've mentioned this several times. I cannot overemphasize the importance of the location of the mountains of Israel. They're called geographically the central mountains in the land of Israel today. It spans all of Judea and Samaria, politically called the West Bank, from Hebron in the south to Shechem all the way up north with Jerusalem right at the center, on upon, uh, sitting upon what God calls the highest of the high mountains of Israel. The mountains of Israel do not belong to the international community. The mountains of Israel do not even belong to the Christian community. The mountains of Israel do not belong to the Palestinian Authority. The mountains of Israel are Israel's everlasting inheritance given by God. And you need to understand that when you study through Ezekiel. Well, we saw that in Ezekiel 35 and 36. We saw the everlasting enmity of the Arab nations around, of the Arab brothers of the Jews. And why there's been such hatred in the land. 
and against the Jews being there, though they have been there from time immemorial. Ezekiel 37 we studied, revealing Ezekiel's vision of the valley of the dry bones. An amazing vision. It's a valley that Scripture indicates is there in the mountains of Israel. We talked about that last week. And the fact that on God's prophetic timeline, we are in Ezekiel 37. Because the dry bones began rattling and were revived in the birth of the nation of Israel. An absolutely stunning prophetic fulfillment in our time. The people reunited, as Ezekiel 37 talked about, the prophecy of the two sticks. And we studied that last week. And whether the Jewish people know it or not, they are on the verge of a more amazing spiritual restoration than they could possibly imagine, just as God has promised. Ezekiel 38 and 39. We studied Wednesday night and talked about how we moved from bone rattling to saber rattling. We talked about Israel's three major wars, and it looks as though, and I want to review this, that there are three major wars left for Israel. And I'm not talking about minor skirmishes, and I'm not talking about incursions, I'm talking about massive land wars, invasions. Three of them, we talked about the first one, Wednesday night. The final Arab-Israeli war, and that's in Psalm 83. We won't go there this morning, but you might want to study it and look at it. Psalm 83 being the last psalm of Asaph, and he describes a war that may very well be next on Israel's calendar. It involves a conspiratorial coalition, a coalition of nations that are bent on Israel's destruction, and it includes all of Israel's most immediate neighbors today. Listed specifically there, you see Lebanon, Syria, Iraq, Jordan, Egypt, and the Palestinians, all in a coalition designed to drive Israel into the sea and wipe them out completely. Psalm 83 is intriguing. And it's caught the attention of some conservative scholars today, and I think it bears serious and thoughtful consideration. And I lean toward Psalm 83 being a prophecy of Israel's next big war. By the way, quick update on that. On Friday of this last week, at the UN International Atomic Energy Agency Conference, the Arab League proposed a non-binding resolution singling out Israel for criticism of its nuclear weapons capability. They are calling on Israel to join a global anti-nuclear weapons pact, placing its facilities under the IAEA monitoring. That just happened this last week. And I think we may very well see this Arab-Israeli war. We may not. Could be out of here before the storm's done blowing through tonight. But we may see this one before the church is called home. I don't think we'll see either one of the next two of Israel's wars. After the Arab-Israeli war, if that happens, if we're correct in our understanding of Psalm 83, the next war would be the Gog-Magog invasion that we studied in Ezekiel 38 and 39. The Psalm 83 war actually paves the way for the Gog-Magog invasion because the massive invasion onto the mountains of Israel that's described by Ezekiel in these chapters remarkably doesn't involve a single surrounding Arab nation. Not one. I don't know if in studying that if you've caught that or realized that, but it involves other nations that are outside that, that sphere beyond the lands that are now Lebanon, Syria, Iraq, Jordan, Egypt, and Gaza, and the so-called West Bank. And so you have to wonder, well, 
if there's going to be this massive invasion as Ezekiel prophesied, something that's never before happened, involving all these nations that are on the outer rim of the nations that surround Israel, are they just going to go through those Arab nations? Are those Arab nations going to invite them in? Why don't we see them listed fighting along with this massive coalition unless something else has happened first? And that's part of the reason people think this Arab-Israeli war may happen before the Gog-Magog invasion. That Israel may very well gain 300,000 square miles that God promised to Abraham in Genesis 15-18 in the first place. From Damascus all the way down to Cairo. From Tel Aviv to Baghdad, the entire region could become under Israel control, Israeli control, prior to the Gog-Magog invasion. It's entirely likely. Because of the Gog-Magog invasion, as we studied this last Wednesday night, we see Israel living securely, at peace. Unwalled villages, no security fence, No concerns, no worries. Well, that would imply a nice, safe buffer zone, which they don't currently have. Something to think about. The Gog-Magog invasion is a massive invasion, again, not involving any of the Arab nations. The Lord in that invasion intervenes supernaturally and decisively in such a remarkable way that the world will know it. Not only will Israel know it, the world will know God stepped in on this one. And yet the world will be plunged into tribulation anyway. Why? Because of rebellion. Because people choose sin, not because they're ignorant of God, but because they would rather rebel against God. Ignorance is not a factor. So tribulation will come. And then, following that seven-year tribulation described by, talked about by Daniel, we'll get there in a few weeks, Lord willing. Then comes Israel's final war. It is a final war not fought on the mountains of Israel, but in a valley north and west of there, the valley of Har Megiddo, Armageddon. Revelation 16:14, Revelation 19:19. 19, 19. Ezekiel now doesn't deal with the tribulation. He doesn't deal with Armageddon. He stops with the Gog-Magog invasion and after that, looks ahead. doesn't discuss these other things. Now Daniel does, very clearly. And of course, so does the Apostle John in Revelation chapter 6-19. through 19. But this brings us to where we are this morning, study-wise, at the end of Ezekiel 39. And I almost tagged this ending onto our study Wednesday night. Just to go to a, a nice happy place. But as I paused and read over it and prayed about it, I came to the conclusion and realized Ezekiel 39 verses 25 through 29 is not an epilogue. It is a prologue. Because Ezekiel goes from the Gog-Magog invasion all the way up to Israel's full restoration. Because he doesn't leave, he doesn't deal with the tribulation. He doesn't deal with Armageddon. He just steps forward and deals with Israel's full and complete Restoration. This is not an epilogue. It's a prologue. We're not looking back to previous peaks or valleys. We are now looking forward. And the other reason I believe that and understand that is because of what immediately follows. We look forward then to Ezekiel 40 through 48, which is all millennial kingdom stuff. 
he in, introduces that, the watchman is about to take us to the highest vista yet. In Ezekiel chapters 40 through 48, we're going to see the millennial temple described in intricate detail. We'll see the return of the glory of God in Jesus Christ filling that temple. We will see the final allotments of land, Israel receiving its full and literal inheritance, all 12 tribes, actually all 13 tribes of Israel. 13 tribes, what's that about? We'll talk about it Wednesday. And we will see the coming kingdom. In all of this, so chapters 40 through 48 are all about the coming kingdom. These few verses are the prologue, the introduction of what we're about to talk about. We're going to pause in the prologue this morning. It's worth the pause. It's worth taking a few minutes and thinking about what the Lord is really saying here. And the reason I'm pausing is because sometimes the Bible can be big. I remember several years ago, Corey, when he was real young, saying, Dad, the Bible's just so large. There's so much there. I I don't even know where to start. And sometimes I can feel that way too. Maybe you do. You read these things. We talk about Wednesday night, the Gog, Magog invasion of Israel, this massive incursion and this amazing intervention on the part of God. And we go, wow, that's amazing. And we walk out of there encouraged and built up. And then we get a phone call that's discouraging. And suddenly we feel, in light of the bigness of God's plan, very small. Sometimes we can wonder in light of His glory, in our humility, how could we really matter that much? I mean, my life versus Gog, Magog? My life versus tribulation and and coming millennial kingdom and all this amazing, glorious, big stuff that Ezekiel prophesies. And I can imagine being one of those Jews in exile going, yeah, but that's so big for me. I'm not Ezekiel. I'm not a prophet of the Lord. I'm I'm not really one even worth much mention. And if you have ever felt that way, if you have ever felt that your life is just kind of small, I want you to listen closely because in these few verses, in this prologue, God gets right up in your face. He goes face to face. Verse 29, listen to this. I will not hide my face from them any longer. For I will have poured out my Spirit on the house of Israel, declares the Lord God. What does that tell us? It tells us that when God pours out His Spirit, He no longer hides His face. That when God pours His Spirit on you, in you, into your life, He doesn't look away anymore. That there may have been a time in your life where you didn't know the Lord, you didn't know Jesus, you didn't have that relationship. And you wondered, where is God? And maybe you cried out and felt unheard. And the Lord says, when I pour out My Spirit, I don't hide My face anymore. I got you in My sights. I've got My eye on you. And that's not a frightening negative thing. It's a wonderful thing. He can't keep His eyes off you. When I pour out My Spirit, I no longer hide My face. Peter said that in simple faith, 
acted out in repentance and baptism, we receive the gift of the presence of the Holy Spirit indwelling. Acts 2.38. Look it up. Read it. Live it. Know it. It's not mystical. It's personal. It's not some spiritualized thing. A few Wednesdays ago, I said, hey, every time you hear that word spiritual, let a little bell go off in your head that says this is more real than the physical. Spiritual doesn't mean esoteric. Spiritual means real. As real as God Himself. And something happens when I come to Jesus in faith, when I, when I accept Him as Lord and Savior. I respond, I repent of the sin in my life. I respond in baptism. And Peter says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Not you might receive. Not you could receive. Not if you jump through a few more hoops, you will receive. No, you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Which tells me that Jesus wants to be with me. Wants to be with you. Maybe you can relate to David. David, who was called the man after God's own heart, but later in life, in his late 60s, perhaps early 70s, he wrote in Psalm 27, verse 9, Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my help. Do not abandon me, nor forsake me, O God of my salvation. And the Lord said through the Hebrew writer, Hebrews 13, verse 5, quoting Deuteronomy verse 8, or 31, verse 8, He Himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. The point is, God doesn't hide His face from His own. Our faith may be dim, we may be looking in other places, but He does not hide His face once He's poured out His Spirit. But wait, Rick... If in verse 29 it says, I will not hide my face any longer, doesn't that tell us, doesn't that indicate at one time He did? If He's not going to, then He must have at some point. Go back to verse 23. The Lord says, The nations will know that the house of Israel went into exile for their iniquity because they acted treacherously against Me. And I hid My face from them. So I gave them into the hand of their adversaries, and all of them fell by the sword. According to their uncleanness, and according to their transgressions, I dealt with them, and I hid my face from them. The hiding of God's face was the ultimate fallout of Israel's rebellion. That was the end of their choice to ignore, to turn away from, to rebel against God the Lord. And we need to understand, God didn't hide His face from a people who were ignorant of a God they couldn't see. He didn't hide His face from a people who were unaware of a Father they didn't know. It was adultery, plain and simple. Oh, you mean spiritually, Rick? I mean, yes, spiritually. Ding, ding, ding. Adultery. A worse adultery than any physical adultery you could commit. It was adultery in that. They knew the Lord and chose other gods. They knew the covenant offer as in a marriage covenant that God gave them and they broke that covenant to sleep around with other gods. This treachery was against a husband they knew but rejected. 
Second Chronicles 36.15 says, The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent word to them again and again by His messengers because He had compassion on His people and on His dwelling place. But they continually mocked the messengers of God, despised His words, scoffed at His prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against His people until there was no remedy. And the point is, there, there is a time when sin and rebellion literally causes God to turn away and hide His face, and when that happens, darkness. Emptiness. But it was never God's desire to hide His face. He didn't call Israel into a covenant relationship so that He could turn away. It's not what He wanted. Just the opposite, in fact. Turn your Bibles back to Numbers Chapter 6. Numbers chapter 6. Numbers 6, verse 22. Follow along. This is a benediction that Aaron was given by the Lord to pray over the people of Israel. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to Aaron and to his sons saying, Thus you shall bless the sons of Israel. You shall say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance on you and give you peace. So they shall invoke My name on the sons of Israel and I will bless them. They being the priests, the Aaronic priesthood. I want the priests to pray this prayer over My people Israel. And as the priests pray this prayer, I will oblige. As the priests say, Lord, make your face shine upon your people, I will look to my people. I will not hide my face from them, he might say. Three times in this beautiful and amazing blessing, three times the Lord applies his name. Note that in verse 24, the Lord. In verse 25, the Lord. And in verse 26, the Lord. Yahweh, Yahweh, Yahweh. Three different times. Why? Because in this beautiful benediction, in this marvelous promise of God, we see the Trinity. And we see it very clearly. The triune nature of our Lord God. The Lord bless you and keep you. Well, that's the Father. It's what God the Father does. Jesus said in Matthew 7.11, If you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask Him? The Lord bless you. The Father is the one who blesses. 2 Timothy 1.12 says, I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that He's able to keep that which I've committed unto Him against that day. The Lord keep you. See, God the Father is the blesser. He's the keeper. But note the next line. The Lord make His face shine on you and be gracious to you. Well, that's God the Son. For you see, if the Lord was to make His face shine on anyone, it would kill him. No one can look at God and live. Moses had already stated that. You can't see God. The Lord said that to Moses. You want to see me? I know. You can't. It would would wipe you out. And you remember, the Lord let Moses see His glory trailing off. That's all Moses could handle. See His goodness. But he could not see the face of God. It would kill him. But here he says, the Lord make His face shine on you, and He accomplished that in Jesus. Sometimes I sit and wonder what it would have been like just to see His face. I mean, in the flesh. To sit there on the mountainside while He was teaching. You know? To be in the boat as He's calming the storm. 
Although I don't think any of the apostles were looking at his face in just that moment. To be Peter walking on the water. And all he had to do was keep his eyes on the face of Christ and he would not sink. To see his face. The Lord make his face shine on you. And of course, what does that do for us? And be gracious to you. The Bible tells us in John 1.16, For of His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. And then we see the Lord lift up His countenance on you and give you peace. Well, that's the Spirit. The Holy Spirit of the Lord. Jesus said in John 14.26, The Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in My name, He'll teach you all things. He will bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. Oh, the Lord lift up His countenance on you and give you peace. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. By the way, that word countenance in verse 26 is lapane in the Hebrew. And it can be translated, it has to do with not just countenance of the whole face, but it has to do with the lower part of the face. And it can indicate smile. The Lord smile on you. Why would God smile on me? I smile on my kids all the time. And many times they don't even have a clue. I mean, just the other day I was in the kitchen, David came in, asked if he could have a chocolate brownie bar, and it's a healthy one. And I gave it to him, and he took it and ripped it open, grabbed the bar out of it, and danced out of the room. I mean, literally, did a little kind of hop skipping. Didn't even know I was watching him, and I just, I'm like, he is just so adorable. He's absolutely, he's the cutest kid I have ever seen on the face of the planet. Sorry, Corey. We joke and say we had to go outside the gene pool to get one so cute. You know? No, I'm kidding. My All of my children, all of my children are precious to me. Although, I can tell you, Corey does not dance out of the kitchen when I give him a bar. But I smiled. I just automatically, and you know that you, when you see kids do stuff like that, you just, it's so cute. And it just, it makes me smile. The Lord lift up His countenance on you and give you peace. And that peace comes. I believe there are so many times we're doing some silly thing in our life. We're not, you know, you're alone in the car and you're singing. And I know you do it. Because the only time you can do it safely when no one can hear you. And I know God is just smiling from ear to ear. And it's His smile that brings our peace. When the face, the countenance, the smile of the Lord shines upon you, it makes all the difference in the world. It's why so often we'll sing the song, Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in His wonderful face. And the things of earth grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. I'm looking forward to the celebration on Tuesday. I've told you before, there are funerals I hate to do. And there are funerals I love to do. And this is one of the ones that I love. Because we will be remembering and thinking about a guy who is not gone, but who is present with Jesus and who is looking full in His wonderful face. Who has the greatest blessing we could ever hope for or imagine. It's a different mindset in this world. It's a completely different way of thinking. This says death for us. Man, once Jesus rose from the dead, then death has no hold on us. Where does it sting? 
They cannot hurt. Yes, there will be days of sorrow. Yes, Lisa and the boys and their daughter, the, the, the family will have sorrow as they think back about the days that they had with Eric. But there are days to come with Eric. In the same way, back, and you can go back over to uh, Ezekiel 39, in the same way we have a prologue here. Eric's celebration of life on Tuesday is a prologue to coming events. And that's the way the Christian thinks. And that's the mindset that we're invited to have by faith in Jesus Christ. The Lord makes His face to shine upon you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and there is blessing, and there is keeping, and there is grace, and there is peace, all when the Lord looks to you. And He doesn't hide His face once He's poured out His Spirit. Now Israel turned off the light, and so God hid His face. Israel turned its back, and so the Lord hid His face. You ever wonder why our world seems to be getting more violent? You ever wonder why it seems to be more confusing? Why it's becoming more disillusioning out there? What we're seeing happen, I believe, globally is what happens when God begins to hide His face from a rebellious people. Now, please don't misunderstand me. I do not believe He's hiding His face from His people, the church. This is why you can be in Jesus and have such an amazing peace even while there's absolute turmoil in the world around. But I begin to wonder, is God turning His face from this world? Is He beginning to hide His face because of the rebellion? He did so with His own people, Israel. I want you to think through a couple of things real quickly here with me about what happens when God does hide His face. Or why, perhaps, He hides His face at all. You might ask, Lord, these are your own people, Israel. How could you do this? How could you allow this to happen to them? And the first thing to note and be very clear on is God doesn't allow it. He does it. In other words, if you want to jot some things down, God is not impotent. And there's there's a phrase used a lot even in the Christian community that I've heard many, many times. Well, the Lord allowed it to happen. No, the Lord doesn't just allow He causes. Well, I don't like hearing that. Because you tell me that the Lord causes, then I have to look at the last six months of Eric Neufeld's life and the cancer and say, what? The Lord causes? What are you getting at here, Rick? I'm telling you that God is not impotent, that nothing that happens in life goes without His notice. That even Satan had to get God's permission to afflict Job. That God knows what's happening. That God is never caught unawares. That nothing is outside the realm of His authority and His power. Now, the more I know Him, and the more I come to trust Him, the more I understand that He does things. He causes hardships, always for good for those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. Now see, that's the difference. Is God will cause hardship in your life. God will bring the struggle, will bring the difficulty. He knows how much He can turn up the heat. He knows how much you can take. And sometimes He will take you right to the end of it. Why would He do that? 
Because his perspective is eternal and ours is itty-bitty puny physical. We have a tiny little perspective. And he's got a massive eternal perspective. And that's what he's working out in our lives. Something so much bigger than we can ask or imagine. And God is not impotent to affect his will. He is not impotent to deal with the problems in our lives, big or small. Now understand, I'm not saying all bad things are caused by God. I'm just saying He is aware of and knows of all of it. But why would He hide His face from His own people Israel? Well, He's not impotent. God is impartial. And we've got to get this down. Amos chapter 3, verse 2. Regarding Israel, he says, You only have I chosen among all the families of the earth. Now you might hear that and say, Well, that's not fair. Listen to the other half of the verse. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. Oh. (laughs) You can have them, Lord. (laughs) To be the chosen of God. And also to be the most maligned of the earth. Because you are the chosen of God. Why would God punish Israel that we would understand that even with His own people, God is impartial? Romans 2.11, there is no partiality with God. Colossians 3.25, he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done, and that without partiality. You look at Israel and you have to realize no one can cry unfair when it comes to the justice and the judgments of God. The Lord punishes sin because He hates sin. And it doesn't matter if it's sin in His people, Israel the Jew, or it's sin among the Gentiles, God hates sin. He is impartial. It doesn't matter if you're a follower of Jesus Christ or not, He still hates sin when we commit it. He forgives it, but it cost Him His life's blood. God is impartial. You know, the old bumper sticker, Christians aren't forgiven, they're not perfect, they're just forgiven. And I think part of the reason behind that bumper sticker coming out was Christians trying to say to the rest of the world, look, we're not better. We're just saved. And we're not saved because of what we've done. We're saved because of who He is. We're saved by His grace alone. But God is absolutely impartial, which means there's not a person on the planet, Jew or Gentile, that God doesn't want to save. And yet there's not a person on the planet, Jew or Gentile, who rejects God, who will not receive the punishment of that rejection. God is impartial. Matthew Henry said, The Lord hates sin most in the lives of those who are nearest and dearest to Him. God is not impotent, but God is impartial. God is, thirdly, intentional. He is intentional. He is intentional in discipline. And those who are closest to the Lord, those who love the Lord, should welcome His discipline. And again, here's something that the world does not understand. The world laughs at the failure of Christians. When a pastor falls, the press is all over it, especially in a large church in a large city. When Christians do something, slip up in any way, have you ever, have you ever perhaps done something at work or in the public scene, said a word you shouldn't say or told a joke you shouldn't told or or done something that was not Christian and your non-Christian friends who know you're a Christian call you on it? Isn't that hilarious? Wait, wait, you're calling me... And why do they do that? Why the laughter? 
Because they don't understand. Just as the nations mocked and scorned Israel, there is laughter at the failure of Christians. There is scorning and our inability to be a perfect people. Well, we're not a perfect people. We're just graced and saved. What the world has missed is that God is doing a deeper, intentional, disciplinary work in the heart of the Jewish people. And when God disciplines me, it's because He's doing a deeper work in my heart. It's because He loves me so much that He's not going to let my foolishness run unchecked. He doesn't like to let His children run amok in their foolishness. And so He disciplines intentionally. 1 Peter 4.17 We've read quite a few times recently. It is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? It is time for us to be a disciplined people. And I would call you, Bridge Fellowship, my brothers and sisters, to discipline in the Lord. To live righteously in the Lord in these last days. To stop playing games with holiness. And to stop saying, I can do this over here, and still I got my walk with the Lord. It's all good. I see so much on Facebook that I wish I didn't see. A friend of mine, not from around here, posted some stuff. Just just posted the line, I've never laughed so hard in all my life. And then posted why. And it was texts that had been, uh, you know, the autocorrect that goes with text and sometimes can really mess up the text. And so I started reading these, and most of them were so foul. You know, as I got down, I, I just stopped and I said, this is a Christian sister. And I'm like, you're finding this funny and you're proclaiming this is funny. And I know that can sound like I'm being a judge. i I, I got to wear this stuff myself. But I think as followers of Jesus Christ in the world, we need to be a little more in tune with righteousness these days. Amen. And I call upon the discipline of the Lord to show us that. Lord, to show me that in my life. Discipline me that I might be holy and different in this world and not just like everybody else. It's time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And God is intentional in sanctifying His people. Hebrews 12.6 says, For those whom the Lord loves, He disciplines, and He scourges every son whom He receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom His Father does not discipline? And I have seen it time and time again with my own kids that when I have had to apply you know, the Board of Education to the Seat of Learning. When I've had to apply discipline, it's remarkable how quickly, and it's happened with every one of my kids, how quickly they become far more affectionate. That's just a weird thing. You would think that that discipline of any kind would cause a child to back away. Well, I'm not going to talk to you. You're going to do that to me. And it's the opposite effect. We discipline for their good. And the response tends to be an affection. Now, if some of you are going, you don't know my kids. Well, we can talk about that another time. It is for discipline we endure. We don't want the Lord to hide His face, right? Let's just get that out there. Is there anyone here who prefers the Lord just to hide His face from you? Okay, then don't do things that would cause Him not to want to look. And He's not going to turn His face away anyway because He's the God of all grace. But don't do things that would make it hard for him to look. Posting things, saying things, talking about things, watching things that you know Jesus could not take part in. I don't want Jesus to hide his face. I want his eyes on me. 
God is immediate. Number four. God is immediate. Look at verse 25. Ezekiel 39, 25. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, now I will restore the fortunes of Jacob and have mercy on the whole house of Israel and I will be jealous for my holy name. You might say, well, he says now, but it's been 2,000 years. And I respond, didn't have to be. Because the now he's talking about is that day that is coming when there will be a wholesale repentance in the house of Israel. The Lord is immediate because the second that repentance happens, saved. There is an immediacy with God that is unlike, again, humanity. When we repent, He restores. He doesn't wait to see how things play out. He doesn't wait until we clean up our lives. He doesn't lay a burden on us to prove ourselves. We don't go to purgatory. We don't have to pay a penance. We repent and the Lord forgives. We bow before Him and He restores instantaneously. Understanding Jesus has already paid for this. He's already paid for the transgressions of our lives. The blood is spilt. The price has been met. So that anybody, the second they turn to Jesus in faith and in repentance, are immediately saved. Again, something that is missed, and sometimes missed in Christian circles. Okay, well now you've done this, so we need to walk you through these other steps as well to get you to where you know, you're know like the rest of us. No. God is immediate. Peter said in Acts 3.19, Therefore repent and return, so that your sins may be wiped away, in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that He may send Jesus the Christ appointed to you. Now he's talking to Israel here. Whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of His holy prophets from ancient time. Which is what we just read this morning. It's what Ezekiel said. The time of restoration. Ezekiel spoke this time of restoration. And now, Peter's saying, or would this be 500 years after the fact, Peter's saying to the house of Israel, he's saying, repent! So that what Ezekiel talked about can happen now. And some did. And the church grew. But Israel as a nation did not. And I think that's the thing to understand. The first century church was all Jews. But not all Jews were in the first century church. Wholesale, the house of Israel still stood in rebellion. Wholesale for 2,000 years, the house of Israel, I'm not talking about independent Jews who have given their lives to Jesus, and there are many. I'm talking about the house of Israel, the nation of Israel, has remained in rebellion. And the only reason why there hasn't been the restoration that Ezekiel promised is because of the rebellion of the people. But the second that rebellion ceases, the moment the nation turns to the Lord, and they will, restoration. Because God is immediate. This passage is not an epilogue, it's a prologue. A promise of what is to come. Look back in verse... 21 of Ezekiel 39 he says I will set my glory among the nations and all the nations will see my judgment which I have executed and my hand which I have laid on them and the house of Israel will know that I am the Lord their God from that day onward now that happens in the Gog Magog invasion at the conclusion of that massive war 
the entire house of Israel will know from that day forward that God is their God. But tribulation comes anyway. Israel still will be deceived. As a people, they will have yet to repent. But again, their national repentance will come. And I know this for one reason. Romans 11.25 For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved. Just as it is written, the Deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. How do you know Israel is going to come to this point of absolute national repentance? Because God said so. Because His Word declares it so. And when it happens, their restoration will be immediate. Now understand something. It's open season right now. It is open season for grace. And anyone in the world can be saved, Jew or Gentile. Repentance results in immediate salvation. Romans 10.13, whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. The Lord says, all of this, this hardening happening to Israel, will continue until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And then, all Israel will be saved. The surviving remnant of Israel, through that tribulation period, will be saved, and there will be a national repentance. You know, I wonder where else can you enter a sinner and leave a saint than the household of God? In what other sphere of life can you in a heartbeat, in an instant, in the twinkling of an eye, go from damned for eternity to saved forever? Only in the immediate grace of the Lord. You know the story of the prodigal son. We all love the story, Luke chapter 15. Believers and non-believers alike love the story of the prodigal son. The son comes to the father apologetically. But the father is too busy hugging, kissing, robing, shoeing, ringing, and barbecuing to even notice the son's repentance. Yes, the father has heard it, but you know the story. When he sees the son coming at a distance, he runs to the son. His compassion overwhelms his disappointment, and he runs to the son. Immediate affection, immediate restoration, immediate celebration. And there are some, perhaps even who will be here this morning, who are just a turn of the head away from the shining face of the Father. Your head, turning to His. Listen to what else happens when He turns His face to Israel. Verse 26, They will forget their disgrace and all their treachery which they have perpetrated against Me. Now, now i got to ask you, Believers in Jesus, have you forgotten your disgrace? Are you still holding on to it? Because to look full into the face of grace is to forget your disgrace. They're going to forget about it. They'll forget about the treachery when they live securely on their own land with no one to make them afraid. When I bring them back from the peoples and gather them from the lands of their enemies, then I shall be sanctified through them in the sight of the many nations. That's talking about the millennial kingdom. For a thousand years, all the nations of the world will watch God sanctified through Israel. As they no longer go through the motions of the past, but they live in the faith of that kingdom. With Jesus, Messiah, 
ruling and reigning there in Jerusalem. A marvelous, amazing time. He says in verse 28, Then they will know that I am the Lord their God, because I made them go into exile among the nations, and then gathered them again to their own land, and I will leave none of them there any longer. He's not going to leave them out in the nations. In fact, in the Millennial Kingdom, that day is coming when every Jew on planet Earth will be home in Israel. No longer left among the nations of the world. Isaiah 54, verse 8, In an outburst of anger, I hid my face from you in a moment, the Lord spoke. But with everlasting loving kindness, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. For the mountains may be removed, and the hills may shake, but my loving kindness will not be removed from you, and my covenant of peace will not be shaken, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. And so verse 29 he says, I will not hide my face from them any longer, for I will have poured out my spirit on the house of Israel, declares the Lord God. Please understand, this is not because of the tenacity of the Jews. It is absolutely because of the determination of God the Father. It is the covenant that He keeps. Some Christians have asked, and some wonder, well, didn't the Lord keep that covenant at Pentecost? Didn't He do verse 29 when He poured out His Spirit at Pentecost? It's not the same thing, because this says, I will not hide My Spirit from them any longer. I will have poured out My Spirit on the house of Israel. Again, the entire house of Israel will will receive the outpouring of the Holy Spirit of God. Pentecost was not the entire house of Israel. Pentecost began with 12 men. It spread out to 3,000. But it was not the whole house of Israel. It grew to 10,000. And then the Gospel went out from there to Judea and to Samaria and to all the ends of the earth, including the Gentiles, bringing them in. But it wasn't the whole house of Israel. That is a time to come. National outpouring which comes right on the heels of a national repentance, is for those the Lord refers to three times in Ezekiel 38 and 39, He refers to them as My people Israel. And if you were here Wednesday night, you heard me say this. That's part of the reason why I believe that Magog invasion excuse me, that's talked about in Ezekiel 38 and 39. That's why I believe that it is after the church has left the building. It's after the rapture. After the church has been caught up that Magog invasion will occur. Why? Because at this time, Ezekiel 38 and 39, the Lord deals exclusively with, quote, my people, Israel. My people, Israel. Ezekiel 38, 14, 38, 16, and 39, 7. He says it three times. Because God's people in the world are no longer the church. Because the church is no longer in the world. My people, Israel. Because the only people of God in the world at that time will be Israel. The church will be gone. That's the prologue. The kingdom is coming. How is this all possible? And what an amazing and remarkable thing. It's possible because God hid His face. And I'm not talking about from Israel. And I'm not talking about from the world. It's possible because God hid His face from His own Son. 
who said, quoting Psalm 22, verse 1, on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Matthew 27, 46, Mark 15, 34, Jesus spoke those exact words. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Jesus realized this, had in that moment on the cross, He had the presence of mind to direct all bystanders for all of history to a thousand-year-old psalm talking about His death in that moment. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Read Psalm 22. It is the psalm of the cross. It is the death of Jesus proclaimed so specifically it's written as though it was written as an eyewitness account. And so Jesus spoke those words on the cross, being the rabbi, the teacher that He always is, in a way saying, hey, look back, this is what's happening. What was proclaimed a thousand years ago is what you're seeing right now. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But my friends, I am absolutely certain Jesus wasn't just speaking prophetically, and He wasn't just speaking theologically. He was crying out personally. That in that moment, God hid His face. And had God not hidden His face then, He could not make His face to shine on you now. Praise the Lord. And all He asks of you, asks of me, is die to yourself and look at me. Look at me. And Colossians 3 verse 3 says, Your life will be hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is our life is revealed, then you also will be revealed with Him in glory. We're in the prologue, gang. And the kingdom's coming. And the question is what you'll do with the days that we have left. Maybe you need to know the blessing or the keeping of the Father today. Maybe you desperately need the grace in the face of the Son. Or perhaps you just need to see see His Holy Spirit shine upon you and give you peace. I'm going to... uh, read this benediction again, but I want to read it as a prayer. So I invite you to bow. And you listen. Because the Lord, I believe, would speak to you this morning, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Lord, I believe you have a word that is very personal for each of us here today. I ask you to give us ears to hear. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance on you and give you peace. Father, I invoke Your name upon Your children here this morning. And Father, there are those who need the blessing of the Lord today. The blessing of Your presence and Your ability, Father, to keep us until You come. Lord Jesus, You said that that You have hold of us, that we're in Your hand and no one, nothing can snatch us out of Your hand. You said that we are in the hand of the Father. Nothing can snatch us out of the hand of the Father. And so I pray the Lord bless and keep us. 
Lord Jesus, would you make your face to shine on someone this morning that needs your grace. Someone that needs to know your forgiveness. Someone who will no longer stand in disgrace, but in your grace, Father, through Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that you will make your countenance, the smile of your Holy Spirit, rest upon those this morning who simply need peace. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.